Welcome back to the second hour of Gesundheit with Jacobus. Here again is your host, Jacobus Hollowai. And good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the program. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. I am your host, Jacobus Holloway, and Chuck Martell, pushing all the right buttons as, as he does every week. And we appreciate he's with us. Also in the studio is Elsie Johnson. She is a learning specialist, and she's talked with us the first hour, and she will be a kind of a co-host with me in the next two hours as we are talking with Ronald D. Davis. And um, so let us... Let me explain to you a little bit about Ronald Davis. Like other dyslexics, Ronald Davis was gifted with an unusual talent for creativity and imagination. Yet, he grew up wondering why he couldn't function right in schools where teachers labeled him retarded. After numerous failures and setbacks, he eventually became an engineer, a businessman, and a sculptor. And at the age of 38 made a startling discovery that enabled him to read a book, cover to cover, in just a few hours. This inspiration led to Davis's revolutionary procedures, outlined clearly and simply in his 1994 book, The Gift of Dyslexia, so that anyone, teacher, parent, therapist, or dyslexic, can use them to successfully overcome the difficulties of dyslexia. Now, you can go to dyslexia.com to find out more information about what uh, Ron Davis is doing with the Davis Dyslexia Association International, the DDAI, Davis Dyslexia Association International, which was founded in September of 1995 by Ron and his wife, Alice, and it's, it's a wonderful resource, folks, to go to, and some great links to articles and research work and uh, and, and research peer-reviewed studies about his success. So we hope you will check that. Uh, you can do it during the show or you can do it after the show. But in any way, we have Ron Davis with us on the phone. Ron, thank you so much for getting up early with us this Sunday morning. How are you doing? Uh, I am doing very, very well. Uh, looking forward to this morning. And uh, I, I'm... Uh, I think in front of you an hour, no, behind you an hour or two. That's correct. So. Uh, <laughs> you, it, it, yeah. uh, it is 8 All o'clock right. right now, and you must be about 7. That's true. Yes. That's true. Well, Elsie Johnson so. is with us as well, and she would like to say hi, I'm sure. Hi, Ron. <laughs> hi, Elsie. Good to hear you. Yes, I was going to tell Jacobus, more importantly, rather than never, never mind the educational specialist, it's being certified. Having gone through the process and the training and the certification that you provide us so that we can help those nonverbal thinkers, that's mm-hmm. really the imp- most important part of my life right now. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to being able to talk about dyslexia to to. Uh, a very large group of people in Bozeman this morning oh, because it's, it's where my life is centered around right now. Mm. Would you please share with us your story? Uh, well, well, <clears throat> the word dyslexia is what gets me on the telephone this morning. Mm, yeah. And I am a dyslexic person, but now there's another word that goes with that. I am a corrected dyslexic person. Uh-huh. Uh, and what that means is I can read and write as well as anyone I know. As a matter of fact, I have 24 editors and publishers around the world today. Wow. So there's a lot of people who are very familiar with the way I write and, and what I write, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, I could not read myself until I was 37 years old. 
That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> when I started out in life, I had a, a, a problem that's actually more severe than the dyslexia. When I was an infant, my mother was told that I was a canner's baby. And Dr. Leo Canners is one of the individuals that coined the word autism uh, in the United States. And I want to I want to jump in just a moment. Canners is spelled K A N N E R, correct? Exactly right. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, his name was Dr. Leo Canners. Uh, Leo Canners, okay. Leo Leo Canner, and he he actually published in 1943. And that's where he, for the first time, used the word autism to describe individuals that do not develop social skills. And the the Canner syndrome is, of all of the the autistic spectrum today, it is the most severe. Uh, Oftentimes, the, the Canner's individuals wind up in institutions around the age of eight, retardation and I got that when I was 12 years old yeah so for me going to school was you know for the first little while I was oblivious to everything I wasn't even aware that I was alive so going to school I had to sit in the corner of the room with a handkerchief on my head most of the time and (laughs) I'm often asked why the handkerchief was there and I think it was there to keep me from running around because children that are the way I was are, are very active individuals, yeah. and if that handkerchief ever fell off, boy, they'd give me a good hard whack, and mm-hmm. they'd put it back on and push my nose tight up into the corner. So wow. I'm pretty sure that that's why it was there. Wow. And <clears throat> now, developmentally, I began to develop around the age of nine, somewhere in there, things in my universe began to change. And I think I did, emotionally and psychologically, between the ages of... of uh, 9 and 12, what an average child does between birth and 2. Wow. And I think I did between 12 and 15 what a normal child would do between 2 and 4. So emotionally and psychologically, there's an 11-year delay in my development. Hmm. And in spite of that, I did not learn to to talk coherently until I was 17. And then uh, I got... Uh, speech therapy at the age of seventeen, where I learned to talk in sentences. So, would you say? And would you would you express uh, uh, words? I mean, would you would you uh, actually express words while you were younger, or were you, uh, were you totally it, quiet? It, it would depend if 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 it were people that I was familiar with, like in my own family. Yeah. Uh, I would I would try to express like if someone was going to be going somewhere in the car and I wanted to go uh, I would say something like car cargo you go car me car go gar cargo me to car cargo right. uh, this is the kind of thing that would happen but if there was someone that that I was not familiar with uh, I would absolutely be be uh, silent <laughs> yeah uh, the when I go to reunions from school yeah uh the one thing that the, everyone remembers is that i was a silent individual many of them don't remember sitting in the corner or the the fact that they were calling me a retard those are are, are long gone memories yes but <clears throat> they do remember that i never said anything huh. 
<laughs> which is rather interesting now because all I do is talk. So uh, <laughs> you're making up for lost time. Indeed, and and it's it's well made up for because what I'm talking about has to do with what a lot of other people are suffering. And dyslexia itself, uh, even though I came at it as... Uh, dyslexia was a secondary problem for me. But as I developed, it became the biggest problem. When I was 17, they actually gave me an IQ test. And as a result of the IQ test, they gave me a new label. They gave me a, the label of genius at the age of 17. <laughs> and that that was, of all of the labels that I had, that was the one that I really didn't want. That's the one that was the, the, the real scary label for me because I was afraid that with that label, people would be expecting things from me that there, that would be impossible for me to, to do. I see. So the, the real value in having that label is the way people would treat me. Prior to that, they treated me like a, as though I was a retarded individual. I mean, I was I was either teased or discounted. Right. And with the label of genius, the the teasing disappeared. And people do treat you much differently with that. But the <laughs> the the decision was after I learned to talk that they were going to teach me how to read. And it's really interesting what they did with me 50 years ago. Yeah. They're still doing it. They're still trying to do it. And it didn't work 50 years ago, and it still doesn't work. Uh -huh. And what they were trying to do is the phonics training. And if you are a person who thinks with the sounds of words, phonics and phonetic training make all of the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. But now, if you're people, a person... <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, in our previous hour, Ron, I help people understand the difference between verbal and nonverbal intelligence. And those that think with the sounds of words would be described as the verbal people with strong right. verbal intelligence. Right, right, okay. Just uh -huh. to give yeah. a reference back. Uh -huh. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, excellent. Well, if, if that's your primary method of thinking, then what, what you would be doing in the phonics would make good sense. But if, if you are a person who thinks with images as opposed to thinks with sounds, all of that training is it, actually, uh, it, you fail so bad when you're trying to do it that it, it destroys your self-esteem, and it doesn't take very long before it's actually emotionally painful to uh, to to go through the the sessions because you just can't do it, no matter how hard you try, mm -hmm. and no matter how silly it seems that you should be able to do this, but you can't. Mm -hmm. It really destroys self-esteem as well. Yeah. Well, it can but, be something as simple as bit, bat, butt for a dyslexic. Unless there, there's so little difference between those three words because of the symbols, unless they can have an image, because the difference of an image between a bit and a butt or a bat are, are gigantic. But yeah. the, just looking at the symbols does nothing for them. Would that be appropriate, yeah. Ron? Yeah, that, that definitely. And, and you don't even needly, really need to be able to see the, the word in attempting to... to to make the sound, you have to be able to internalize the sound. And if you are a nonverbal thinker, internalizing that sound is, for most of us, it just doesn't happen. And because it does not happen, then when we have to bring it back, it's just not there. And, and you know, eventually you get to the point where you can't even remember the b, the, the b sound. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get very frustrated. 
and then you want to leave and you want to cry and you want to run away. <laughs> and the, the the people that you are working with you have no understanding of what it is that you're experiencing or going through, and they just want you to keep going over and over and over it. Right, and, and I understand <laughs> it, that that you said, you express it uh, in your interview, um, that it was both emotional and physical torture. Yeah, it, it, truly. I, I would have preferred to, to have a physical beating than to actually go through an hour's worth of phonics. Can you can you try to describe to us uh, how, like somebody like myself who doesn't have that, what is what is that pain that you feel? Well, uh, it, it's well. First of all, we would have to say that it, that it is a psychosomatic situation. In other words, there isn't somebody putting pressure on you to to stimulate the the nervous system for that kind of pain. Okay. But you, you yourself are. You're trying to get your voice to do something, and and you're, you're putting all kinds of, of intention and pressures into your throat, into your voice system. It, it can go all the way down into your, into your chest and, and your diaphragm, right. where you are trying to do something, and what you're trying to do isn't working. Yeah. So you're causing contractions to occur that actually do hurt. There is physical pain that is being exerted. And because you're the one that's doing it, mm. you think the way to solve it is to, to do more of what it is that you were doing that was causing it. So the harder you try, the worse it gets. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it, now I don't know if all of the dyslexics will go to that degree. Uh, it, it might be that that my autism was also playing a role there. Mm -hmm. But from what I understand from other individuals that that are not in the autistic spectrum, that they experience very much the same thing when they're trying to do the phonics. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of my favorite autistic dyslexic people in all of history was Albert Einstein. Yes. And Albert Einstein once said, the, the definition of insanity is when somebody tries the same thing over and over and over again, <laughs> expecting a different result. And that's exactly what they're doing with the phonics. They're doing the same thing over and over and over, and they are expecting a different result. So it's not really me that says that, trying to do the phonics is crazy. It's the most intelligent man of the 20th century that says that. Right. So this is, this is what, what they were trying to do. Now, also in my early training, uh, and again, we're going back 50 years, uh, I had to balance. Well, first of all, I had to crawl around on the floor for about a half an hour twice a day. Okay. And then I had to balance on a, a teeter board and balance on a balance beam. And, you know, they're still doing that today with, with kids who are, who are dyslexic. They're, they're still trying to get them to, to do these things that have nothing at all to do with what's going on. If they could just realize that they have to deal with the, the method of thinking that is picture thinking as opposed to the, the sound thinking, they, they would realize, ah, what we need to do is we, th this person needs pictures. We don't need to show them pictures. They need to create the pictures. Okay. In other words, <clears throat> to show them pictures for the meaning of words is, is almost <clears throat> as big a waste of time as trying to do the phonics. Uh -huh. Because 
it isn't the pictures that you see with your your eyes. It's the pictures that you see with your mind that count. Mm-hmm. And those are pictures that you yourself have to make. So let me ask you, Ron, those, those first 17 years before they finally realized that you were much smarter than what they originally labeled you as, do you recall any of the times standing in a corner, being at home, being outside in the playground? What were some of the things that would go through your mind? Was there repetitive thoughts? Was it, uh, was it uh, more natural <laughs> thoughts? Do you remember that? Not really. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Word thinking, thinking with the sounds, you're aware of the sound. You're aware of the thinking. But when you're doing the picture thinking, it's happening faster than you can be aware. When when we slow it down to see what's going on, the person is actually thinking with images, and the images are happening 32 images per second. Well, we cannot be aware of anything that happens faster than 24 in a second. And that's the speed at which the the modern movie film moves at. Okay. And if something is happening and there's more, you know, the the amount of time, what we're talking about here is called the incidence of awareness. The incidence of awareness is 124th of a second. In other words, if there is a stimuli in the environment, that stimuli has to be present for more than 124th of a second in order for you to be aware that it's even there consciously. But if it is there for less than that, it goes into what is called the subliminal band. And the subliminal band goes up to 136th of a second. So the stimuli can be there, but it's not there long enough for you to be consciously aware of it. But at some level within your system, you are aware of it, and you will react to it as though you were consciously aware. And because the picture thinking is happening within that band that is the subliminal band, you as the person who is doing the thinking, you're not aware of what it is you're thinking. Oftentimes, a parent will ask a a dyslexic child, what were you thinking when you did that? And the (laughs) child will simply say, I I don't know. And that is actually the truth. Now, we're not allowed to not know what we're thinking, (laughs) according to our parents. So, you know, eventually we get to the point where we know that it's not safe to tell the truth about what's going on within us. So... uh, when you when you ask now, I can remember the feelings that, that were going on uh, in in regard to what was happening okay. without necessarily knowing the the thoughts that were behind it. And you know, like <clears throat> right around the point in time when I was coming out of the autism, let's say that you know, possibly in grade school, let's say fifth grade, uh, my mother was still pinning notes on my chest to to take to the teacher. Huh. And and you know, I, I was very happy to do this. I, I you know, but at night, at the end of the day, the kids would tape stuff on my back to take oh. to my mom. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> and this is the kind of things that would make my mom cry. Yes. Now I was also the kind of person that could not be touched. Uh, I did not like physical contact. Uh-huh. And. It, the the pinning notes on my back is the kind of thing that would make my mom want want to hug me and tell me that everything was okay. Yet, I was pretty much oblivious to what was going on. I see. Uh, so th- these 
are the kinds of things that were happening. Now, my older brother, when there's a family that has one like me in, in the middle of it, the, essentially the whole family becomes dysfunctional. I see. And my mother, my mother tried. Uh, for me, my mother was an angel. Mm. My father was the opposite. He was the devil. Yes. And my father had no patience with me, and he did not have the kind of communication communication skills necessary to to allow him to even attempt <laughs> to communicate with me. Okay. So my relationship with my father was a physical relationship. In other words, <laughs> he beat me a lot. Yes, I and Ron, I would love and, to hear from you more, but we have to run to a short break. If you please okay. stick with us here through the break, um, we'll be going on for another hour and a half with Ron Davis and Elsie Johnson right here on Gazuntai with Jacobus. Fascinating story. I would like to hear more about this relationship uh, with his parents, and also I'm just curious how you have been able to deal with this emotional. Uh, abuse in a way uh, later on in life. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.